0: don't know anything about me I love stories it's like one of my favorite things and when someone can tell a really good story you're sitting there and you're just like entrenched in what they're saying John was sharing a story last Tuesday and as he's talking I'm like I feel like I'm actually there this is amazing and I say that because it is just one of my favorite things and I, I truly believe I think God designed us that way to just love stories. And when you hear someone that tells it really well, and sometimes not even told well, but just a really good story, you're like, this is amazing. We see it in movies. Uh, I think you think of like Lord of the Rings, the good guys beat the bad guys. I think you see it in comic books, probably why Marvel's doing so well. And I'm just like, I love it. I love seeing a good story. And as I get to talk with the Falconers, that is the two uh, people up here that were singing, they're doing something called the Institute. And I had the opportunity to do this last year, and it's 11 months of discipleship. And I'd grown up, part of my story is hearing some of these stories in church when I'd go visit my mom. My parents were divorced. And so I'd hear stories about David and Noah, but I'd never really heard the full story before. And as I got to go through the Institute, it is a deep dive, and they're talking about reading a ton of Scripture. And it was overwhelming and one of the most encouraging things uh, that I'd ever heard, and I get the opportunity to walk through. And I start there because tonight we're gonna do something uh, that's probably a lot to chew on. We're gonna go through the entire Old Testament uh, in about 25 minutes. And I know it sounds like a lot, right? And it's like, wow, that's, that's a lot of scripture. But what I want you to hear, what I want you to see is the narrative that God has written. Because when I think through a good storyteller, there is no one better than God. And he's written a story And I remember growing up and reading this, and I thought this was a rule book, and I was like, man, I just need to make sure my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, and then maybe sort of possibly might have the opportunity to go to heaven. But who really knows, right? And I didn't realize this is a love story about a God that loves us and cares for us and wants to be in relationship with us. And so that's what we're gonna walk through today. I hope you're excited. Um, As I was thinking about it, I know some people like to take notes, and it's like, this will be super helpful. There's gonna be a lot. We're gonna go kind of quick, And so instead of you trying to like furiously take notes, I'd rather you just sit there and listen. Just listen and allow me to just walk through this. We're gonna put this on our Instagram page and on Facebook as well, just all of my notes and you can have it. And I hope it spurs on opportunity for you to go read it for yourself and say, man, there's some stuff in there I didn't really know. Man, there's something a little bit different uh, that I don't think I've heard before. And so I know um, Emma just prayed, but I'd love to pray again before we jump into God's word and really spend time diving into it. And so... Lord, we are really thankful for tonight, just the opportunity to come before you and be reminded of your word. That you haven't left us here wondering what's next, but you've given us your word, and there's a story in here, and it's all pointing to one person, and that is Jesus, which Emma reminded us of. I pray that this time would be all yours, that we wouldn't steal any of the glory, that I wouldn't steal any, but just cast it all all the glory at your feet because you deserve it all. Thank you for giving us this word and this story so we could better know who you are and why you are worth following. Thank you for tonight. Lord, then we pray, amen. Well, guys, um, in the beginning, (laughs) there was God and he created the world in six days. In the first three, he formed the outer workings of the world and the next three, he filled it. And at the end of those six days, created man. And he said, it is very good. And God and man in the beginning were in perfect relationship with one another. But God saw something, he's like, man, it's, there's something missing. Uh, I think Adam needs a partner, so it creates Eve. And Adam and Eve are living in the garden together in perfect relationship with God. He says, you can do anything here. You can eat of any tree, but there's one thing you can't do, one commandment that you can't do, and that is eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For if you do that, you will surely die. And we see in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in who is Satan and tempts Eve. And I I sat here and thought like, man, I guess tempting her with an apple, but what that really represented is, man, God really that good and is disobeying him really that big of a deal. And so we see that she's tempted, she eats of this fruit, and then gives it to Adam who is right there with her. I think in my head, I thought Adam was like way over here, probably tending to something, and she's like walking up and he had no idea, but it tells us that Adam is right there next to her. They eat of the fruit, disobeying God, fracturing relationship with God, and now there's separation, because sin has entered the world. Uh, And I started in children's ministry, fourth and fifth grade ministry, and so what we would tell them is, sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God because we'd have boys in that are like, I for sure haven't sinned. I'm like, if you hit your sister? He's like, yes. I'm like, all right, then you're in the club. Uh, and so sin has entered the world. And we see in Genesis three fifteen that God curses Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And this is the first picture, the first depiction that God's like, man, I'm going to fix this. I'm gonna change everything because I designed you to be in relationship with me and I wanna be in relationship with you. And it points to a wounded victor that will crush the head of the serpent and bruise the heel. And we see that God doesn't kill Adam and Eve, but sacrifices an innocent animal and that bloodshed, covers them and literally covers them to atone for the sin. Another depiction of the bloodshed of Jesus Christ and how that will, thank you so much brother, (laughs) how that bloodshed will cover us. And so God ushers Adam and Eve out of the garden And as they go and they start to really populate the world with more people comes more sin, more people, more sin. And God is looking down at his creation and just the world that he created that he was once well pleased with. And he said, man, I wish I would have never created this. Man, I wanna just start all over. But he sees one man, a righteous man named Noah. He says, Noah, you're righteous and I'm gonna save you and your family. And so they get on an ark and he wipes out the rest of humanity with a flood. And as they get off of the ark, we see that even though Noah was righteous, he was still sinful. We see that he gets drunk, falls asleep, and they begin to repopulate the world. And as more people, there's more sin. They populate with more people, more sin. And so what we see with the generations after that is that it wasn't enough to just be made in the image of God, but they wanted to be gods of their own lives. So they were like, you know what? We're gonna create a tower. We're gonna build a tower to work our way to God. The Tower of Babel, what this represents is we don't want security from God. We don't wanna be made in the image of him. We wanna be gods of our own lives and we're gonna show it and we're gonna steal all the glory. And so in God's kindness, he confuses their language and disperses them among the land. But what we see here is that God is still working in the midst of this story, still pursuing his people. And he finds a man named Abram, who's the son of Shem, who is the son of Noah in the land of Ur. And he says, Abram, I want you to go ahead and leave this land and I'm gonna make a covenant with you. This covenant is gonna be three parts. I'm gonna promise you a land, a seed, and a blessing. A land that all of your generations will get to live in. A seed that you'll be the father of many generations. And a blessing that I'm gonna bless the world through you. And I can only imagine, Abram's probably like, that's awesome, my man. Real quick, I have no kids. He says, don't worry. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And what we see is that, Abram's name is changed to Abraham. He is married to Sarah and they end up having a son named Isaac, the son that God had promised. And really to test Abraham's faith, God says, you know what, I want you to go ahead and sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham, like having faith in God, is willing to go do it. And in the scriptures, it says that he wakes up early, prepares, takes Isaac up to this mountain, is just about to do it. And God says, stop, and he provides a ram. Another depiction that God is going to eventually sacrifice his own son on our behalf to pay for the sins that we really should pay for. And so as we see this, the story moves along and Isaac marries Rebekah and they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau being the older one and the birthright is supposed to go through him. And if you're like, man, I don't, didn't grow up in church and not really sure what a birthright is, the older son, the, the covenant would go through him. And so it was supposed to go through Esau. But the older son, Jacob, was deceptive and deceives his brother and says, I want the birthright. Give it to me, and I'll give you a bowl of stew when he's really hungry. He's like, done. And not only does he deceive his brother Esau, but his father, Isaac, and Isaac blesses him. And so now the blessing of that covenant is going to go through Jacob. And Esau, frustrated and angry, wants to kill Jacob, chases him, Jacob ends up leaving the land and flees to another land where he marries Rachel and Leah. Ends up having 12 sons, and these become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob has a wrestling match with God. And his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. In a crazy turn of events after this, one of the sons is sold into slavery by the brothers. And at first they wanted to kill him. And one of the brothers is like, you know what? I think that we can sell him and get some money from this. So they sell him. And Joseph eventually is sent to Egypt where he is enslaved and also imprisoned. But he's able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, there is going to be a famine, a huge famine you need to prepare. And Pharaoh sees this and he goes, you know what? I'm gonna put you second in command and you're gonna be the one that prepares for this. So Joseph becomes a second, really the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Through this, the famine comes, and as people come to Egypt to get food, Jacob and his family come. The relationship between Joseph and Jacob and that family is restored. And what we see in this part of the story is that the seed blessing of the Abrahamic covenant all the way back in Genesis 15 is starting to be fulfilled because what we see is from the 70 people who come to Egypt doesn't just stay 70, it grows to hundreds of thousands. And so as this continues to happen, Jacob, Joseph, the family dies away, but this nation is still growing and is still there. And a Pharaoh ends up coming into power who doesn't know the name of Joseph. And he sees this nation that is massive and he starts to oppress them. And as he oppresses them, they grow. And as he oppresses them more, they grow even more. And so he makes a decree and says, We're gonna kill the firstborn male from every family because I wanna stop any future rebellion. And so they do. And the boy who ends up surviving, his name is Moses, raised in Pharaoh's court. And as he grows up, he actually ends up killing an Egyptian man, is found out, and then flees to the land of Midian. And while he's there, God shows himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And he says, Moses, I've heard the groans of my people, and I'm going to use you to set them free. And Moses is multiple times is like, hey, God, I don't think that you want to use me. Hey, I don't really speak well. And God says, I'm going to use you for my purposes. It is not about you. And he says, well, when I go back to Egypt and they ask me who sent me, who should I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. And tell them I am sent you. God using his name Yahweh the Lord for the first time. And so you've probably heard the story. Moses goes back to Egypt, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. He says, nope, I'm good, thanks. Probably not quite like that, that's my own version. But doesn't let them go, so God sends down 10 plagues. And what this is showing is that God is holy and he's perfect and he's stronger and more powerful than any of the gods that the Egyptians are worshiping. And really those 10 plagues or to point out the 10 different gods that they would worship. And the last plague was the killing of the firstborn. And this wasn't just for the Egyptians, but Israelites alike. And so God tells Moses, go ahead and tell the Israelites that when the angel of death comes, take a blameless lamb and spill the blood over the doorpost. So when the angel of death comes, they will pass over, not killing the firstborn. Another depiction pointing to Christ who is called the Passover lamb and that his blood would cover our sin and be the savior that we need. And so this happens, this ends up softening Pharaoh's heart and he lets the Israelites go and God leads his people as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night through the Red Sea, destroying the, the Egyptian army, which at that point is like the epitome of power in that day, like the most powerful I can't even imagine what that would look like, the most powerful place. And he wipes them out showing, I'm the one true God. None of your power can even match the power that I have. I created all things. And so he leads his people to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law. And to let you know the law is two parts. It's both revelatory and regulatory. Revelatory, revealing the character and the holiness and the perfection of God, who he is to his people. Because they had been in prison for 400 years worshiping Pharaoh. So he's like, hey, I need to remind you who I am. But it's also regulatory. How are you gonna relate to an all-perfect, almighty, holy God, worthy of all of our praise? And also, how are you gonna relate to one another? So he gives them the Ten Commandments, but here is what we also see: is the creation of the tabernacle and the specificity of what it looks like to make it, because this is where God would dwell with His people. Because God did want to dwell with His people. If we look all the way back in Genesis, that is why He created them to be in perfect relationship together, but a sinful people couldn't look on a perfect, holy God. So He's like, "This is the way that you can come to Me, and it's important to do it the way that I call you to do it, because you're sinful." And the tabernacle is placed at the center of the camp, just like God should be placed at the center of our heart. And so after that, Moses leads the people to the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them in the Abrahamic covenant. And so Moses gets to it and he's like, okay, we're going to take 12 of these guys. I want you to go into the land and I want you to spy it out to see if we can take over the land. And so they go in there and they spy it out and they come back and they're like, okay, what's going on? I'm like imagining this in my head. And Caleb and Joshua say, this is the land that was promised to our father Abraham. God will be with us. He will deliver us and give us the land because he told us he would. And he's a God that keeps his promises. And then there was 10 of them that were like, "Ooh, man, there's some big people, big cities and big walls and I don't know if we can do it. And the Israelites listening to the 10 instead of Caleb and Joshua say, man, we don't want to go into the land. And God in his wrath says, you know what? I'm going to give you exactly what you want. If you don't want to go into the land, good. I'm not going to let you go in there because I want a people that trust me, that have faith in me. And so anyone that is 20 years and older, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day the spies were in the land of Canaan. And so as they're wandering around, For 40 years, the people start complaining and they're like, man, I wish I was back in Egypt, even though we're enslaved. uh, We had food and I think it was better than where we're at right now. And I'm like, man, how often is that us? Man, the sin that I was doing, you know what? It's better than where I am now. This is way worse. And what if I just go back to what I was doing? And we see that's what the people do. And God in his wrath sends down fiery serpents so when they would bite the people, they would die. The people start to cry out to God. They're like, God, save us, help us. And so God tells Moses to build a staff with a bronze serpent at the top and hold it high in the sky so when the people would be bit, they would look to it and be saved. And we see this as another depiction of a savior that would be lifted up and pay for the sins that we deserve to be paying for. And we see this even brought to light in John 3 in the New Testament. And so we see this happen But we also see that Moses wants to steal glory in a certain spot, strikes a rock out of anger, out of his own strength. And even Moses isn't allowed into the promised land. But even though as they're wandering, there's a new generation that is raised up and Moses did a great job of raising up a new leader in Joshua, one of the two spies that said, we should go into this land. This is what God promised to us. We can trust him, he's a good God. So they raise up Joshua. And Joshua, um, God speaks to him and says, Joshua, I want you to be brave and courageous. You can take the land. So as he leads his people into the land, God says, hey, I need you to do these five things. If you do these five things, I promise the conquest will be successful. It's drive out all of the inhabitants. Don't intermarry. Don't make covenants with them. Destroy all of their idols and do not worship their gods. If you do these five things, the conquest will be successful. And what we see this conquest is not a conquest of force, but it is by faith. We see that they're not the ones really doing the conquest, it's God. He's like, I wanna give you a front row seat to this. We see it in Jericho, that they're not the ones that tear down the walls, it's God. And so the success that we see in uh, Joshua as they settle in the land leads into the book of Judges. Because even though there's success in Joshua, there's failure in Judges because they actually, they didn't drive out all of the inhabitants. They left some of them in there. And what we see is seven cycles of sin in the book of Judges. We see that people fall to sin, they become enslaved to that sin. They cry out to God, God, please help me. He saves them and then there's a period of silence. And the way that God would save his people is he would raise up a judge to save them. But the interesting thing is when we look back in Genesis, we see guys like Abraham who were considered righteous, Noah who's considered righteous, but the judges aren't that. We see guys like Gideon who needs three separate signs to finally trust God. A guy named Samson who's strong, but marries a Philistine woman. One of the things he said, hey, don't do this, and he does it a woman named Deborah. And so we just see that continues. They continue to do what is right in their own eyes. And it starts to be a spiraling effect. It just gets worse and worse and worse in the book of Judges. And when I look at this and I think of those cycles of sin, I think of my own life. I think uh, when I was going through regen, struggling with pornography, I thought that was gonna be the thorn in my flesh. I was like, man, when I hear guys say, man, i had freedom from 10 years, I'm like, you obviously don't have the same struggle I do. I was like, this is just what it's gonna be for the rest of my life. I would fall into sin. I'd become enslaved to it. And I'd cry to God, I'd be like, Lord, help me. Will you please save me, help me out. And I'd have some freedom from it for a little bit. And then things would be good. And I'd be like, man, I'm doing great. This is awesome. It's all about me. And then I'd give right back into it. And it was a cycle of doing it over and over and over again not realizing I'm doing what's right in my own eyes and trusting my own strength instead of trusting God, which I should have been doing all along and didn't realize until after the first year I went through regen, so I went through again. But how often is that us with our sin, right? And so as we see the story continue on from Judges, we see that the people looking around at all the other countries there, all the other nations, and they're like, man, everyone else has a king. You know, we don't want Judges, we want a king also. God says, guys, I made you to be set apart like I told you in Exodus 19, that you'd be a kingdom of priests, that you'd be different than everybody else. And you don't need a king because you have a perfect one. But he said, you know what? If that's what you want, I'll give you what you want. And so he calls Samuel, the last judge and a prophet, and says, I want you to anoint the first king. So Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And if you think about Saul, Saul's probably that tall, dark, handsome, well-spoken guy The guy who you would envision when you're like, okay, when I'm thinking of a really good king, what I'm gonna see is this guy. And that's who's raised up. But what we see in 1 Samuel 13 is that they're about to battle the Philistines and Saul is like, Samuel, I need you to make an offering for me so that God will be on our side and we can win this victory. And he goes, okay, I need you to wait for seven days. Wait seven days and I'll be back and I'll make the offering. And so we see seven days go by, and then Saul ends up being impatient. He's like, okay, I'm just gonna make the offering myself, breaking the laws all the way back in Deuteronomy, showing that he's not a guy after God's own heart. So God sees that and he says, you're not a man after my own heart, but I'm gonna raise up one that will be. Enter in David, (laughs) like least likely guy who would become king. You're thinking like shepherd boy, like one of the things that it's like, there's no way. The youngest of eight sons, not the oldest son, not the guy who would get the birthright. And not looking on the outward appearance, but looking at the heart, God says, that's a man after my own heart. He starts to get some prestige. People follow him. He kills Goliath. You might've heard that story. People are like, man, this guy, and he gets pretty popular. And Saul's like, you know what? I'm gonna kill David and chases him around. And David runs, even though he was told, man, you will be the next king. And he has two different opportunities to take really the matter is into his own hands and kills Saul. And even his buddies are like, man, kill him. This is our time. We finally got it. God's delivered him into your hands. And he says, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so we see that Saul ends up passing away and David ends up becoming the next king of Israel and actually unites the kingdom, which is amazing. And then 2 Samuel 7, we see that God sees him and says, David, I'm gonna make a covenant with you as well. And I'm going to promise you three things, a house, a kingdom, and a throne. A dynasty that's going to come from your lineage, and a king that will sit on the throne forever, and he's going to come from you. But we see that sin is still in the world. It hasn't gone anywhere. And even though David was a man after God's own heart, there was still sin in him. And we see that as he's up on top of his palace, mansion, whatever you want to think in your head of what that looks like. But then he sees a woman he says, man, I want her. I want what I want. Ends up sleeping with her, finds out that she's married and then devises a plan to kill her husband. And so we see, even though he's a man after God's own heart, that he's still sinful and he's not the perfect king. We see this leads to troubles where son Absalom chases him around, trying to kill him similar to what Saul did. But God is faithful. God is so faithful to keep his promise. And so David ends up having a son called Solomon. And Solomon, young, at a young age, prays and is like, Lord, I want wisdom. Give me wisdom on how to lead your people, which is, man, honestly, probably one of the best prayers you could pray as a leader. Lord, give me wisdom because I can't do it on my own. If I do what's right in my own eyes, I've seen that that does not go well. You've shown me that through the book of Judges. But even though he's a wise king, sex, money, and power distract him. He wants it. And so we see that even he is not the perfect king. Still, just a picture of a perfect king that was to come. And so we see in the midst of that, that even Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is arrogant. And instead of listening to his elders, the guys that were surrounding his father, he listens to his friend, a lot of his friends. And so through that, the people see that he's arrogant. And he's like, you know what? We don't want to follow Rehoboam. We're going to raise up Jeroboam. And so this ends up splitting the kingdom, Rehoboam in the south, in the kingdom of Judah. And then in the north was Jeroboam, and he would rule Israel. And we would see that in the north, Jeroboam, in Israel, that there would be 19 kings, none of them righteous. And in the south, there would be 20 kings, eight of them righteous. Men like Asa and Jotham and Hezekiah and Josiah. And that they followed really the example of David. And in the north, they followed the example of Jeroboam. And we see through the splintering of the kingdom and the split that Israel ends up being taken over by Assyria and is exiled and completely wiped out. And then even though Judah survives for a little bit longer, they are also thrown into exile and taken out by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And they're in exile for 70 years. And during this time, what we see is the prophets. And the prophets are trying to give the people hope Prophets like Jeremiah, who's gonna say, man, you're gonna be in exile for 70 years, but there's gonna be a king who's gonna come into place. His name's gonna be Cyrus, and he's gonna allow you to go back to the land that was promised to you. Jeremiah told this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus even came to power and calls him by name. They even have other prophets like Isaiah, the suffering servant, who points to the fact of there's gonna be a savior to come that is going to cover these sins that has really plagued the entire story so far, and he's coming, so get ready. And so what we see is that Babylon is, ends up being taken over by Persia, and there's a king who comes in a place named Cyrus, and he makes a decree that all the Israelites can go back to their promised land, but they don't all go at once, it's gonna happen in three waves. We see Zerubbabel, comes back, rebuilds the temple. Ezra is gonna reinstate the law for the people. And then Nehemiah will rebuild the walls. I never really thought about that the first time I heard it. I was like, man, that sounds kind of cool. I I think I'd probably rebuild the walls first. I don't know, just me. But God also showing, hey, you're trying to find security in yourself and the walls that you build. I want you to rebuild the temple first because I'm the priority and I'm the one that's gonna save you. I'm the one that's gonna keep you safe. I'm the one that's doing everything for you. I want you to have trust and faith in me even when it's hard, and we see that. But what we see is that the people are still sinful, and right, how often is that us, that we're prone to wander, that we feel good for a little bit, but we tend to go back to the sin, right? Try to rely on our own strength, and that's what we see. We end up seeing that they desecrate the temple, they start to intermarry with the people, and then they neglect the wall, And so towards the end of the Old Testament, God is silent for 400 years, but that he is still working in the details. And the next time he would speak is through the cries of a child. And guys, when I first heard this and even heard this story told all the way through, I was like, wow, that's a lot of information. And that's a lot of things to think through. And I didn't realize, I thought I just really needed to read the New Testament. I was like, man, I really don't wanna read Deuteronomy. I'm sorry. But Ephesians, I think that has more to do with my life because it's actually even closer to me. So I think I can get a lot more out of that. And I didn't even know that Jesus was through every single story in the Old Testament. And growing up, as I heard these stories about Noah and David and Abraham, and I think when they use the word righteous, I'm like, hey, that's really far from who I am. There's no way I'm righteous. I'm a guy who struggles with pornography. Drug addiction, cocaine is ruining my life. Relationships, I'm latching onto literally any relationship to feel safe when I'm finding it outside of God. And I really saw it a lot through inventory. I know you guys hear about it a lot in step 4 of like, ooh, geez, inventory, I've heard about that. And I think we see our own depravity and we wanna believe the lie that the enemy says is like, hey, you are too far gone for God to accept you. Sorry about it. Maybe next time. Maybe you're just gonna work your way. And when I see this, I see men like Abraham who didn't trust God. And you can go back and read, but he pimps out his wife twice to two different kings. Doesn't actually trust in the story. Like, man, is God really gonna provide a son Isaac for me with my wife Sarah? She's barren, right? I don't think that he can do that. So he ends up sleeping with his maidservant's wife. And I'm like, oh, all of these guys that I just held on these pedestals, and I'm like, man, these guys are just too great. There's no way I could measure up. These are broken people. And we see that God uses broken people for his purposes. And he turns our mess into his message. And so if you're sitting there thinking there's no way, this is the first time I've ever heard of this. I think I'm too far gone. We see in these stories that you're never too far gone, that God is pursuing you, that God was in perfect relationship with his people, but because of sin, There was separation, but he has a story about, man, I'm bringing you back into relationship with me and I've done everything for you. You can't earn it and guess what? You actually don't deserve it, but because I love you, I wanna bring you back to me. And if you don't think there's a God pursuing you, the fact that you're sitting in a church on a Monday night proves it when there's tons of other things that you could be doing. And that's the sweet thing to be reminded that no one is too far gone, that God loves you and cares for you and desperately wants a relationship with you. And he's not mad at you. The longest, for the longest time, I thought God was up in the sky like a taskmaster with a whip, ready to whip me into shape. And I didn't realize he's more like a father on his knees. And he's like, hey, I want you to come back. The things you're doing, you're not gonna like. And it's gonna pull you further from me. And you think you're gonna find security there, but there's hurt, pain, regret, And the love I have for you, there's none of that. Will you trust me? And that's what he's telling us. And we see it in the New Testament, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not, hey, Colby, go ahead and get yourself well. After you go through regen twice, man, that's when I'm gonna die for you. Yep, go ahead and do some work. In the midst of my sin, when I was really flipping off God and I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. I'm gonna do what's right in my own eyes. I'm gonna make a name for myself. God said, yep, that's the one. All I had to do was surrender. And the sweet thing is I started to realize this is not a rule book, but it is a love story. And he didn't just leave us here wondering like, man, how can I know, how can I know but when I look at 1 John 5, 11 through 13, it says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life and he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. I have written these things down for you who believe in the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not guessing, not wondering, not like, man, uh, I, I, maybe... I have written these things down so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so if you're sitting in here and this is the first time you've ever heard this and you're like, wow, that's a, that's a lot. I didn't understand that that was the story, that there was a golden thread about a savior through the entire Old Testament. That actually has a lot to do with me. I want you to know this is a safe place. If you've never heard that before and you're like, man, I would love to talk more about that. What would it look like to have a relationship with God? I want to let you know you could leave tonight knowing, man, I'm absolutely 100% sure that I'm going to spend eternity with God forever. Because God is both Savior and Lord of our lives. Not just Savior of our eternity, but Lord of our life cares about your Monday night. So if you think God doesn't care about you right now, I want to let you know he does. And that is what his word tells us. And I know this, I keep saying it's a lot of information. It's like, that's great that you know that, but I'm really struggling on how to even start. And I'd say, just begin in the beginning and read a little bit at a time. I didn't understand this overnight. This isn't something that was easy for me, but it was a little bit at a time and getting myself around other guys and girls that understood this and just learning from them and humbly submitting and saying, hey, John, will you teach me? hey, help me better understand God's word and how I can apply it to my life. And if you're like, man, where do I begin? Your regen book is filled with God's word. And I'd say, why don't you just start right there in daily abiding. And through that, God will change your life. Let me pray that he would.